Our epistle lesson this morning is mercifully short. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. And as we gather this morning, Father, we do ask that grace and peace would be multiplied to us. We are those who have been set apart by the sanctification of the Spirit, and that Spirit grants us faith, and in that faith, you grant us understanding of your word, and so lead us into all truth. This morning, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. During the summer of 1997, I had the opportunity to live in Mexico City for two months. I was working there with Mission to the World missionaries that were on long-term assignment there in the city. The first weeks of that assignment through that summer were filled with fascination. Mexico City at that point was the largest city in the world, growing at tremendous rates day over day. There were sights and sounds, tastes and mores that were foreign to me and were interesting. I was captivated by the entire experience. My Spanish, as many of you know, limps along, but I took great opportunity to improve upon it and harass the poor citizens of Mexico. But after a couple of weeks, a certain loneliness began to set in. What had been a phenomenon, the phenomenon of being a tourist where everything is new, suddenly became something else. That there was a sense of homesickness. There was a profound sense of being out of joint, out of place. That this young man from Eastern North Carolina, a small town in Eastern North Carolina was profoundly out of place that the ways things were done, the language that was spoken, the food that was eating, the way people greeted, the way people drove cars, the relation to time and appointments that were set up, the social customs, everything, absolutely everything about my existence, and I had six more weeks in front of me, was different. And for the first time in my life, I realized that I was a foreigner. I was an alien. I didn't belong. And this is exactly what the Apostle Peter is arguing in this letter that he writes to the many churches that were scattered across the north and central part of modern-day Turkey. It's a large region, you see, that he marks out. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This was hundreds and thousands of square miles, something akin to the state of California today. And Peter writes to these churches, and he denotes that they are exiles, that they are living in exile. And he's not using that term in the political sense of which we often understand it today, but rather he's referring to those who are dislocated and disaffected from the society around them, that they are aliens and foreigners to the culture in which they live because of their beliefs and their trust in Jesus Christ. 
that they were living in a foreign place. He actually closes the letter in a similar way if you turn over to chapter five in verse 13. He says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And this is actually Peter speaking of his home church where he was located in Rome. And so he refers to the Roman church as Babylon, of course, picking up on the Old Testament context of the people of God being in exile. And this is how Peter conceives of the entire Christian life, that it is one lived in exile in which we experience a certain homelessness, that we are foreigners because we've been marked out and made different in some way by God. And so it's appropriate to understand our existence as those who believe in Jesus as minorities in a majority culture where we possess different beliefs and customs. We possess different values and ideals. And all of this, of course, creates tension. There's dissonance in our lives because of what we profess to believe and what God has done in us. But it is this feeling of homelessness that does get adverse reactions in the church. On the one hand, in the midst of the dissonance, some decide to go native. That is to simply lay aside Christian convictions and beliefs and to assimilate themselves to the culture around them. This is one response that we see. On the other hand, some decide that they will simply grow hostile. That is that they will retain their Christian beliefs and convictions in some way but what they'll do is disengage from the world in frustration and critique, withdrawing from everything around them. And the Apostle Peter, as he writes this letter, he is writing to these Christian aliens, these foreigners who don't belong to the society around them, and he's plotting a different course, one that will avoid the errors of assimilation and one that will avoid the critique of withdrawal and anger and plotting a different way for the Christian to relate to the society around them that does not share their convictions, that doesn't share its fundamental presuppositions, that doesn't share our beliefs that we can't expect to. And the question for us this morning is what is it in particular that we need in order to thrive in this dynamic? as we are a minority inside of a majority culture, what is it? There's one place that Peter begins in this short introduction, is that for the Christian, living as a minority in the midst of a majority culture, is that we must remember who we are. You see where he begins as he greets them, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. He uses a very peculiar phrase, elect exiles. He's denoting them in a particular way and calling them into this larger biblical story of the people of God who are set apart by the favor of God to serve a particular purpose. And he wants to drive that home, then and there and here and now today. That what we must remember in the middle of life as we live in a society that doesn't share our fundamental convictions, is that Peter doesn't begin by giving us a how-to book 
about how to be a Christian in the modern world. He will get very practical in the coming chapters. But where he begins is by reminding us of who we are, driving home our sense of identity because of what God has done in Jesus Christ and affected by the power of the Spirit. And before Christians begin to reason about what to do, the point Peter is making is that we must first focus on who we are. That before any discussion of strategy or what is to be done, that the Christian focuses upon identity and being and what has been assigned and determined by God. Now as a kid, growing up in Eastern North Carolina, I was a couple hours away from my grandparents. Some of you have heard this story before, no doubt. But there was a certain liturgy to visiting my grandparents. We would drive two hours, sometimes stay for the weekend, sometimes just the day. But every trip, no matter the duration of it, ended the same way. My grandparents were rather elderly. We have basically a skipped generation on that side of the family. But they would come down the steps to the driveway as we loaded up in the Caprice Classic. All the windows would go down, including the back one with the backwards facing seat, if you remember this thing. And then suddenly my grandfather would begin by saying, now remember who you are. And then out the windows, we would all hang and say, no, you remember who you are. I didn't even know what we were saying. It just was the chant. It was the back and forth. It was a liturgical creature even then. And then he would yell it again, and we would drive around the block yelling it and honking the horn, remember who you are. And this is what Peter is doing here. And this greeting of the letter is calling the church, the people of God who were undoubtedly part of many different ethnicities. They were spread across a huge region. There were so many things that they did not have in common. But he says there is one common identity they share, that they are all elect exiles, bound together in Jesus Christ, and he's calling them to remember who they are. Two parts specifically that we're seeing to this remembrance. First, we are aliens. This is profoundly at the core of what it means to be a Christian. And when we push against that and when we reject that, we're actually pushing back against the determination that God has set for our lives. That when we don't accept the fact that we are aliens and foreigners and will experience dissonance and tension, that life will be profoundly uncomfortable because there will be many people in the path who do not share our fundamental convictions. When we struggle with that, when we don't accept that dislocation and homelessness, we're actually fighting against the identity that God has assigned to us. At every point in life, even perhaps where we share a belief with the majority culture, we would probably do so from a different vantage point, from a different starting point. And so we need to expect that there will be this dissonance and tension because we are those foreigners, we are those exiles. And when we ignore this, what tends to happen is that we become comfortable with the culture that is around us. And we end up domesticating the gospel, syncretizing it into the culture so that we don't stand out. And rather than feeling and experiencing the tension, 
what we do is we try to knock down that tension just as much as possible so that we can fit in. But this isn't the path that God prescribes for us. He says that we are aliens. And that determination is the determination that we must accept. Bringing that into the very core of our being. And while in some ways isolating, it is to be the comfort of the Christian that this is what our God has determined about our lives. And we share with Christians across hundreds of years, thousands of years of existence, of being aliens and strangers, homeless and dislocated in a world that doesn't share our beliefs. The second piece to this remembrance, though, is that we are chosen. Not only are we exiles, but Peter also adds that we are elect exiles, a powerful word across the whole canon of Scripture. That is that we are chosen, we are singled out for this by God. It's a personal and powerful way that God assigns to us this task of being homeless and living in a dislocated way, that we belong to him. It's the initiating grace of God that sets us apart from society. He doesn't consult with us. But rather what we learn is that this initiation goes back before the foundations of the world in such a way that it's difficult for us to get our minds around it. In verse 20 in chapter 1, Peter is going to say that Jesus was foreknown by God, that he was set apart by God to be the redeemer before the foundation of the world. And God in his own foreknowledge has now caught us up in this great mystery. Of course, as a pastor, one of the most frequent questions that I receive, especially as a Presbyterian, what is all this business about election? (laughs) Chuck, isn't it more divisive to focus on this? Don't we simply want to focus on the main things and keep it simple and not be controversial and divisive by talking about words like predestination, election, and God's choice. John Calvin, great Genevan reformer, faced the same question in the 1500s, and what he concluded was this. He says, first, we don't want to ignore the topic of election. He said, if we ignore it, we're then ignoring something that God has revealed about himself, and then we're going to be guilty of ingratitude. And so we want to appropriately focus upon the doctrine of election when we find it in our scriptures and we want to affirm it, even if we can't fully understand it or get our minds all the way around it, because we don't want to be guilty of ingratitude. Because Peter is definitely arguing that this is a privilege to be an elect exile, chosen by God for something noble and dignified. But the second part of Calvin's advice He says, we also don't want to become preoccupied with the topic. He says, if we become preoccupied with it, then inevitably we're going to go beyond what Scripture says and we're going to enter into the philosophical systems of men and we'll begin to speculate. He says, and so we want to walk in this path in which we avoid speculation and in which we embrace gratitude. And that is our goal. And what Peter does is he takes us a step further into this great mystery in verse 2 of what it means to be an elect exile. And he grounds it in the Godhead itself. 
that God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the one who works this out. And that we as the elect exiles are caught up in him in this great mystery. And if you follow in verse 2, he makes three arguments about this election. First, he tells us how this came about. He says it came about according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, this word foreknowledge doesn't indicate that God simply looked down the corridors of time and observed us or had some information about us. But rather, it's a stronger term than that, that it means that God determined something about us. It is active and powerful and effective. We've seen in verse 20 that Jesus was also foreknown to be the redeemer of God's people. He was the lamb who was to be slain before the foundations of the world, that this is how it came about according to the wisdom and free decision by God. But second, he tells us by what power this has been affected. As we continue the sentence, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, or you could say by the sanctification of the Spirit, that the Spirit sets us apart, the Spirit consecrates us. This begins at conversion, and the Spirit continues to abide with us. This is the power that has affected it. But then finally, he concludes telling us for what purpose this was done. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. That this is the purpose of the foreknowledge of God and the sanctification of the Spirit is that we then follow after God in obedience and that we're set apart for the forgiveness of sins. These two benefits of the gospel always being distinguished but never being separated. That they go hand in glove, they belong together, that the grace of God forgives our sins, God initiating to us, the blood of Jesus sealing and forgiving us. But then to that grace, there is always appended gratitude that the Spirit works out in our lives, that this is the purpose. And so this is no harsh determinism, but rather it is a plan of God that's enacted by the Spirit and worked out through the to the good work of Jesus Christ. And now we are the people forgiven by God and set upon a trajectory of obedience in which we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. And what Peter engages us in is remembering all that God has done in his three persons to accomplish our salvation. This is who you are. We share in this identity. To fight this is to fight the very determination of God that he's laid upon you before the foundations of the world. We're not to go against the grain in that way, but rather to accept that in the foreknowledge of God, he personally set you apart and placed his favor upon you. That then in time, by the spirit, he sanctified you and set you apart. And that in time, through Jesus Christ, he went to the cross for you. He rose from the dead for you. That he ascended into heaven and he intercedes there for you. It's a grand, cosmic, mysterious statement, and yet incredibly personal at the same time. And here is God consoling us 
with this identity that he's assigned to us. Several years ago, Melissa and I read the book, The Help. Catherine Stockett, undoubtedly many of you are familiar with it. Epic Southern characters. Abilene, the African-American maid who tends to the house and to the children of the Leifolt family. The daughter's name is Mae Mobley Leifolt, and she is ignored and unattended to by her mother. Her mother was negligent and overbearing. The child is unloved, but Abilene adopts her and cares for her. In one very powerful scene in the book, the mother scolds the child. The child has absolutely no self-confidence. She collapses into Abilene's embrace. And Abilene tells her, you're kind, you're good, and you're special. Announcing consoling words over her to fight the messages that she was receiving from the world around her in which she was nothing and despicable and unwanted. And when your God calls you to remember who you are, he consoles you and he comforts you. That this word of election is the very word of the gospel, the free grace of God. That God has come to you and done for you in Jesus Christ and through the power of the Spirit what he determined to do before the foundations of the world. And it is the most comforting and consoling word in the middle of the tension and dissonance. It orients us. It directs us to true north. It gives us our sense and our way. And so there is a last question for us. But how do we sustain this? Through the trouble that we find in the book of 1 Peter? Through the sorrow that we hold in common with them? Through the trials that we undoubtedly experience as we do our best to follow after Jesus? How do we sustain it? Peter announces a blessing here at the end of verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. It's fascinating because Peter doesn't understand salvation as a transaction. It's not a one-time thing, an aisle we walk, a baptism we receive. But it's a power that comes upon us and renews us day after day as we look in faith to Jesus Christ. And he has a dynamic sense of the grace and peace of God being multiplied to us. And that what is necessary in this life of homelessness, in which we're dislocated, in which we will never fully be home until Jesus returns and raises dead bodies and renews the world and creation is healed, that's home. But until then, our one comfort in life and death is the multiplied grace and peace of God that will ever assure us of this identity we have, that we are those foreknown by God. We are those sanctified by the Spirit. We are those sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed upon the cross, that that is our dignity. And our path and our way is to follow him, even sharing now in his shame, as we'll see through the book. But this is how it's sustained. It's looking in faith to Jesus. It is holding fast to him. It's knowing that he's the one hope, the one source of meeting, the one comfort. And so look to him.
and delight in the fact that you're an elect exile, chosen and distinguished, singled out by God for the noble task of walking with him in the middle of a world that doesn't share that conviction. Let's pray. Father, as we stare into great mysteries, we confess the limits of our own knowledge, but yet we also delight in what you have revealed and we affirm it today. That in your great foreknowledge before the foundations of the world, you set apart Jesus Christ and all who are in him. And we belong to you, elect, chosen, singled out, this great privilege. And we are filled with gratitude today and continue to fill us as you multiply grace and peace to us in him. May we know all the favor that is ours in Jesus Christ and by the sanctification of your spirit. Remind us day after day of who we are. And so may we gladly bear up in life in a society that has different convictions. May we joyfully do so, not with anger and not with withdrawal, but joy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.